Bicarb? <sighs> Probably not. Welcome back to Pete's Crit. I'm Zach Hodges, a pediatric ICU fellow from UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin, a critical care fellow in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at Pete's Crit? Absolutely. Pete's Crit is an educational pick you podcast. We're taking the best teaching spiels from the country and the world, and we are putting them in your favorite podcast app. And Alice, what are we talking about today? Today, I am so excited because we are talking about the physiologic difficult airway. This is not navigating the airway anatomy. This is how to get your patient safely intubated when they are peri-arrest. Zach, who did you recruit for us to talk about this? Today, we have the pleasure to talk with Dr. Prashad Afyun. Dr. Afyun is an assistant professor of pediatrics and anesthesiology here at UT Southwestern in Dallas. She is dual trained in pediatric critical care and pediatric anesthesia, and she brings a wealth of knowledge to managing the high-risk airway in the pediatric ICU. Yes, and I am so jealous that you get to train with her. Let's get right to the content. Welcome back to the PedScript Podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Prashad Afyun with us today to discuss this very important topic, the physiologic difficult airway. Welcome, Dr. Afyun. Welcome, Prashad. To get things started, will you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and include something you enjoy outside of medicine? Sure. So I am a dual-trained pediatric anesthesiologist and intensivist at Children's in Dallas, part of UT Southwestern. My interest outside of medicine, I have two young boys who play hockey, and we spend like five days a week at the hockey rink, and that eats up a lot of my non-professional time. <laughs> oh, I have to say, I'm really surprised by the amount of ice hockey happening in Dallas. As someone who trained in Western New York, I am surprised and impressed. Yeah, yeah. Why did you decide to dual board in pediatric ICU and pediatric anesthesiology? And what does that training path look like? So I started out wanting to be a pediatric intensivist. I was in my first year of pediatrics residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I met several dual-trained intensivists and anesthesiologists there very early in my residency. And just kind of watching them in the clinical arena, I realized that they had such a unique skill set and were so confident and comfortable in taking care of patients. And I really was drawn to that. So I ended up, after my pediatrics residency, doing an anesthesiology residency, followed by a pediatric critical care fellowship, and then lastly, my pediatric anesthesia fellowship. So in total, it was nine years of training after medical school. Oh, wow. And I can see just having that extra experience in the OR certainly translates over to having those bedside skills when things aren't going well in the PICU. The experience with a kid who might need an airway pretty soon sure seems to help. Prashad, do you have any advice or recommendations for maybe a medical student, resident, fellow, trainee, listening in regards to this dual training pathway? Yeah, I would urge anyone who's interested in pediatric critical care to consider it. It's much easier if you know you're going to take this route early on. There are not too many hurdles anymore to this pathway, which is very helpful. I think anyone who's interested in critical care should consider that they'll probably also really be interested in anesthesiology because they're so similar. And the two are really synergistic. I use my critical care training in the OR all the time, and I use my OR training in the ICU all the time. So I believe it. Alice, you want to give us the first case? Yeah. You're admitting a six-month-old girl with bronchiolitis and a possible superimposed bacterial pneumonia. She came to the PICU on high flow, but has been transitioned to positive pressure ventilation. Over the past few hours, she's needing a pretty high FiO2, and you are concerned that you need to intubate. 
Now, I love this case because this, in my mind, is the bread and butter of critical care medicine. What makes this intubation so high risk? So young children and infants, especially with bronchiolitis, are at very high risk for significant bronchospasm and worsening gas exchange during and after intubation. With any viral respiratory illness, airway reactivity is is heightened, and we see this especially in kids with bronchiolitis. Even if the child doesn't have any evidence of wheezing or bronchospasm during their illness thus far, they still really remain at high risk for having bronchospasm with intubation. Infants, you know, particularly neonates, particularly neonates with a history of prematurity, are at increased risk of hypoxemia, rapid development of hypoxemia during airway management because of their low FRC relative to older children and adults. They have an increased oxygen consumption as well relative to older children and adults. And so those two things together, they often will become hypoxemic very quickly in the peri-intubation process. And then the hypoxemia is often compounded by bradycardia because of the high vagal tone. So all that taken together puts these kids at high risk. And then lastly, you know, infants and neonates have risk of upper airway obstruction after administration of sedatives and anesthetics because of their you know, underdeveloped cartilaginous structures. They've got a large tongue. Especially during viral illness, they've got a fair amount of nasal congestion, and that does impose a good amount of airway resistance. And then lastly, a lot of times, you know, they've got a large occiput, so they're kind of, their necks are, you know, naturally sort of in more flex position. So all that taken together, they're at risk for airway obstruction as well during the peri-intubation process. So I have lots of reasons to be worried about intubating a baby with bronchiolitis. And, you know, we see this patient all the time. So there's almost this temptation to think, well, here's just another bronchiolytic who needs to be intubated. But gosh, they are certainly so high risk. So you detailed all the reasons they're high risk. Will you tell us how you want to optimize a patient like this prior to intubation? So I try to extensively preoxygenate. I think that if you have a child already on a non-vase positive airway pressure, it's a really good opportunity to put them 100% FiO2 for, you know, many, many minutes before intubation. I think that helps obviously quite a bit. I do like to pre-medicate with albuterol as well prior to induction. I feel like it helps diminish some of the airway reactivity that I know is about to develop or worsen. And then I do think that giving atropine is a reasonably good idea. As I said before, I expect them to become rapidly hypoxemic, especially if the endotracheal tube is not placed promptly. And if you're working with trainees, you know, you have to take that into consideration that it might take longer than you would anticipate it would. And then, so, so the, you know, the atropine can help with prevention of bradycardia developing due to that hypoxemia. So those are some of the things that I will plan for in advance of intubating one of these babies. Nice. What meds would you use to intubate this patient? So presuming you don't have any concerns for cardiovascular dysfunction, hypotension, et cetera, my go-to is typically propofol for induction in these babies. Propofol has really excellent bronchodilating properties, and I think... The main advantage is that it's really more effective than the other anesthetic drugs in achieving a really deep plane of anesthesia during intubation. From what I can see from my experience, that's probably the most important thing in terms of preventing bronchospasm and the vulnerability to airway hyperreactivity is keeping them under a really deep plane of anesthesia during intubation. So anything that's noxious can stimulate airway reactivity. So laryngoscopy, you know, the actual intubation itself, et cetera. So real generous dose of propofol, like three to four milligrams per kilogram is, is typically 
adequate to achieve that deep plane. And then you have to consider as well that if first pass is not successful for intubation, that you're probably going to have to redose that propofol. The child's not going to move because they're paralyzed. And so you may be lulled into this, you know, false sense of security that the child is still deep, but they're not. And so you have to keep in mind that probably in a few minutes, you're going to have to redose. You may not have to redose another three to four milligrams per kilo, probably one to two would be sufficient, but that's also something else to keep in mind. So I hesitate to ask this question because I know it might be a bit triggering for an anesthesiologist, but you sure like one mic per kilo of fentanyl and 0.1 of Versed isn't, isn't just good enough? No, I'm, I'm absolutely sure it's not good enough. You know, fentanyl midazolam, especially those doses are doses that we use to achieve mild to moderate sedation. And I'm seeking general anesthesia during intubation to diminish those airway reflexes as best as we can. I am going to ask this because I'm not an anesthesiologist and I'm afraid, a little afraid of the vasodilation from propofol. How often are you cycling the blood pressure while you're running this resuscitation? And then do you find that you usually end up giving a little bolus prior? I think every three to five minutes for cycling the cuff is sufficient. You know, if I anticipate I'm only going to be giving one to two doses of propofol, if they become hypotensive with it, it will wear off. This is, again, presuming we don't have, you know, a child with cardiac dysfunction or shock. So, you know, presuming that's not the case, the effects are going to wear off very quickly. And so typically I don't give a bolus of fluid to offset any hypotension that might develop. I just wait for it to resolve. Tell us about, do you paralyze all of these kids every time? And then what sequence do you give these meds? In the ICU, I definitely paralyze every time. You really risk coughing and bunking with laryngoscopy and intubation, especially with the airway hyperreactivity in these babies. They're at you know, more risk for coughing. And you can give enough propofol to keep that from happening, but chances are you're going to have to give a lot and frequently redose. And so it's a little bit tricky. I prefer rocuronium. And the only thing that I would consider is that with the paralytic and a child with airway hyperreactivity, they may have really high airway resistance. You may have trouble ventilating them for some time until they get some return of neuromuscular function and at least start to trigger breaths on the ventilator, contribute some negative pressure breathing to their ventilation. So if you are very concerned about that, you can consider giving a smaller dose of rocuronium. So it doesn't always have to be 1.2 mix per kg. That's the rapid sequence induction dose that gives you intubating conditions in 30 seconds. So if you are happy to bag ventilate the child for two to three minutes, a dose as small as 0.6 milligrams per kilogram will be sufficient. And then you can anticipate some return of neuromuscular function in about 20 or 30 minutes, if not sooner, rather than maybe 45 minutes to an hour with the 1.2 mg per kg dose. But for you, are you doing like an RSI type procedure here where you're giving propofol and rock at the same time? Or are you delaying things somewhat? I do. I go ahead and I give it at the same time. There's really not an advantage here to giving the propofol, waiting for them to fall asleep, and then giving the rocuronium. You know, I'm, I'm confident in the dose that I'm giving a propofol that it's going to be sufficient to achieve that plane of anesthesia that I'm shooting for. I go ahead and I, and I RSI. I also, you know, when I can, and this is a little bit controversial, but when I can, I like to avoid mask ventilating these kids while waiting for the paralytic to kick in. So if I've given that 1.2 mg per kg dose and it's only going to be 30 seconds, I do like to avoid mass ventilating. And the reason I say that is these kids with lung disease are going to have either high airway resistance or poor compliance. And you're likely going to need high airway pressures to ventilate their lungs. And the upper esophageal sphincter opens at a pressure of 20. So anything over that, you're risking the pressure going down the path of least resistance into the stomach. And then very easily, especially in babies, as you cause gastric distension, you're going to parathoracic compliance as a result and then make it even harder to mass ventilate these babies. 
And so you start with a set like in the low 90s and then you're mask ventilating. And the next thing you know, because you're not mask ventilating well because of their lung disease, your sats are now in the 60s and you keep trying to get them out of the 60s. And then a lot of times you end up just abandoning it and doing laryngoscopy and intubating the baby rather than going through that whole very stressful process. Many, many times I prefer to just let the child be apneic for 30 seconds and presuming you've pre-oxygenated well, they can tolerate it fairly well and then uh, proceed with laryngoscopy and intubation. Oh, wow. This sounds, this is so different and it sounds potentially so much faster and cleaner than the typical, you give the ketamine, you wait, you give the rocuronium, you wait, you bag the patient for a while, you re-pre-oxygenate and then you finally lift the mask in DL. Yeah. Right? Like this is very... Does this change or do you do this even when you've got, for example, like a resident doing their first handful of airways? Or are you pretty confident with like, they're going to hold the mask, the patient is going to stop breathing, and then the resident will take a look? Yeah. If the child doesn't have any lung disease, then my preference is to mask ventilate and knowing that it might take Mm -hmm. a few tries to get the endotracheal tube in. But if the child has lung disease, I still feel like that process of trying to mass ventilate is not going to go as well as you intend it to and will delay the endotracheal tube getting placed. And honestly, if I have a kid with really, really bad lung disease and the trainee doesn't get it on the first try, then, you know, I may consider <laughs> asking um, if, if uh, you know, I can go ahead and proceed. Yeah. Having a backup person right there, right? Like, yeah. Anything else to add to this case before we move along? You know, the other thing I would say is that Sometimes despite your best efforts to prevent a bronchospasm with intubation of bronchiolytics, sometimes it still happens after the tube is placed. And that can make the picture a little bit murky. You know, sometimes the bronchospasm is so bad that you don't get end tidal CO2 or you get very little blips. It can be concerning for everyone in the room that maybe the endotracheal tube is in the esophagus and not in the trachea. Keep that in mind, but you'll be able to tell because the bag won't feel right when you go to to ventilate this child. You know, it's going to feel like you're having to use a lot of pressure. It doesn't feel that way if you're in the esophagus. So the other thing that, you know, I would say is if you do encounter bronchospasm after the endotracheal tube is placed, you can try administering albuterol right away through the endotracheal tube. But, you know, if you're not ventilating at all, probably the albuterol is not going to get seen. So I like to use, if the child's hemodynamics are tolerated, I like to use more propofol in that situation because it's an IV agent. I know it doesn't rely on adequate ventilation for it to be effective. And again, it's a really, really good bronchodilator. And probably you did get a little bit light in the process and you need to deepen them again. So it kind of achieves multiple purposes. It's kind of similar to having dilute doses of epinephrine available for IV administration for severe bronchospasm. But then you don't have to worry about you know, the tachycardia and hypertension that comes with the administration of the IV epi. Great. Well, this is the, the first example of an anesthesiologist coming into the ICU and helping us be a bit more comfortable with propofol <laughs> for these sick kids. Honestly, I'm jealous because this is something where this is a true culture shift. And if you're not experienced with this, you're not going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Should I give him a second case? Let's do it. You got a four-year-old male, no past medical history, has new onset type 1 diabetes. He has severe DKA, initial pH of 6.9. He was given an IV fluid bolus, started on insulin, and admitted to the PICU. Over the past hour, there's concern for worsening mental status, and you're worried that he's developed significant cerebral edema. You give him a dose of mannitol, but you're worried that you may need to intubate him. So tell us, why is this scenario such high risk, and what are you worried about? So we all know that DKA causes significant hypovolemia. I really worry about transitioning kids who are hypovolemic to positive pressure ventilation because of the risk of cardiovascular collapse that can happen with that further reduction in RV preload when you make that transition. 
And then the significant acidosis as well from the DKA may also impact cardiac contractility. So kind of two hits there. And then also we've got the concerns about the intracranial hypertension as well. So during induction and intubation, there's a lot of homeostatic derangements that occur. And most of them carry the risk of worsening intracranial hypertension and decreasing cerebral perfusion. So things like hypoxemia, hypercapnia, hypotension, laying the child flat for intubation, all of these are factors that may worsen your intracranial hypertension and cerebral perfusion. And you even risk the child herniating during that time if their intracranial hypertension is particularly severe. So these kids, even when they're really sick and their mental status isn't perfect, they still tend to coo small and, and, and breathe really, really deeply and really quickly. How do you decide when these patients need to be intubated? You know, I think it all comes down to whether you feel like the child is protecting their airway. The standard practice of, you know, GCS less than eight intubate. I think that's not really fair in this situation because of the risks that can be incurred with intubation. So as long as you feel like the child's reliably protecting their airway, I think I would hold off. You know, the other thing to consider is that usually even severely altered sensorium from DKA and cerebral edema rapidly improves with the improvement in hypovolemia and improvement in acidosis. So this is a time-limited problem. If the child was so somnolent that gas exchange is impaired, you can consider, okay, this child is probably not going to protect their airway and obviously is not having effective gas exchange right now. And so at that point, I would probably consider intubation. Mm, Sort of the they're no longer breathing down their acidosis effectively mm-hmm. and I need to secure the airway. Yeah. This is interesting to me because I feel like it butts up against or like it potentially butts up against the classic DKA management practices, but how are you optimizing this kid prior to intubation? Are you giving potentially giving more fluids or you would you consider bicarb anything like that? I think I would do some gentle fluid loading prior to induction intubation because of that significant risk of cardiovascular collapse with that transition to positive pressure ventilation. Yeah, typically we're not supposed to fluid load these kids, but I think in this situation, you've got to do what you can to prevent the child from arresting. So I think I would. And then, yeah, pre-oxygenation is a must for every child. Bicarb, (sighs) probably not. But if child does have cardiovascular collapse after intubation, then maybe in that scenario, I would consider administering it then. So tell us how you're going to set up your intubation, what order and what meds you're going to use and and what sequence. So, you know, considering getting all of your supplies ready, you know, I have a mnemonic that I use for the OR and I use it in ICU as well. It's MS maze. If there's any anesthesiologist listening, they'll know intimately what that is. So machine, suction, monitor, airway, IV drug, and then special equipment. So I use that mnemonic every time to make sure I have everything available and ready. Consideration of pre-medication. So some people like to use lidocaine for kids with increased ICP. Really the benefit there is probably to reduce some of the autonomic hyperactivity that can happen with noxious stimulation, but appropriately dosing your induction agents and using an analgesic as well during induction will likely achieve that same effect. And then, you know, I would consider trying to intimate this child had a bed up given his increased ICP and it's feasible. Just need to get yourself a step stool to do it. Those are the particular sort of things I would have considerations for this child and things I would have prepared. All I got to say is, you know, the anesthesiologist is on call when you walk by and you see her intubating with the head of bed way up. That's all I got to say about that. (laughs) I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. How are you paralyzing these kids? There's no real benefit to not paralyzing here. So I would give rock. I would do the rapid sequence dose. You know, this child probably doesn't have lung disease, so it could be mask ventilated. But I do worry, especially in these kids with significant acidosis, 
about how empty their stomach is with really, really sick, critically ill children, kids with shock, sepsis, bad trauma. There's this idea that at the time the illness starts, your stomach stops emptying. So consideration for NPO time doesn't really, it's not really relevant here because they may have been NPO for 24 hours, but there's probably stuff in their stomach because they started getting sick 24 hours ago. I prefer, again, to RSI when I can, and in this particular case more because I'm worried about the risk of aspiration. We're also worried about keeping up with their ventilatory requirements. So is it my understanding correct that you want RSI them as quick as possible, and then perhaps maybe do you hyperventilate them after you get the tube in? You should try to do that to meet their ventilatory requirements that they themselves were keeping up with. The other consideration here, you know, if you want to give the whole 1.2 mg per kg of rocuronium so you can do a proper RSI and not mass ventilate if you're worried about aspiration. And if you feel like you need to reverse the paralytic, you absolutely can. So we have Sucamidex available in our ICU in the Omni cell for emergency use. And in this particular scenario, exactly, it would be, I think, helpful. So Sucamidex is a selective relaxant uh, binding agent that literally goes through the bloodstream and encapsulates rocuronium and vacuronium. It's supposed to be better for rocuronium. And you can give Sugamidex immediately after you give rocuronium, and it's effective. You have to give a much higher dose of Sugamidex at 16 milligrams per kilogram, whereas if some time has elapsed and if you're able to check some twitches, if you've got at least one post-satanic twitch, then you can give four mg per kg. And if you have more return of neuromuscular function, you can give two mg per kg. So you can get them back breathing without having to wait for the rocuronium to wear off. So if you are unable to keep up with their ventilation, consideration for giving Sugambidex is helpful. Great. Anything else to add about this case? I don't think so. Nice. All right. So let's go to case number three. You've now got a six-year-old girl with short gut syndrome and an indwelling central line. She is admitted to the PICU with septic shock. In the ED, she got 60 per kilo of isotonic crystalloid and started on an epinephrine infusion. Once she got to the PICU, she was started on also some high-flow nasal cannula to support her work of breathing, and her epinephrine has been up-titrated to 0.15 mics per kilo per minute to maintain an appropriate mean arterial pressure. She is very ill-appearing, and you are worried that you need to intubate. So what makes this specific scenario so high risk of an intubation? I think kind of relating back to our last scenario, this child is at high risk of cardiovascular collapse, again, during that transition to positive pressure ventilation, and even maybe with the administration of induction agents, regardless of the induction agent you use. Again, the reduction in preload during this transition in this child with vasodilatory and hypovolemic and possibly also cardiogenic shock is going to be really ill-tolerated. And then, as I mentioned with the induction drugs, you know, There are some induction drugs that are obviously safer than others, but it's possible that with any induction agent, anything that you give to relax the child, to take away some of that sympathetic drive, anything you give in this scenario may cause cardiovascular collapse. So in addition to how you would optimize our previous patients that we've discussed, is there anything specific for septic shock you would use to optimize this patient prior to intubation? I think that we talked about fluid loading with the prior case. I think additional fluid loading definitely should be considered here. And I would also consider preemptively increasing the infusion rate of whatever vasoactive agent 
the child is on, anticipating they are going to have worsening hypotension that will develop during this process. And then definitely need to have code meds ready in this situation. Probably have some dilute epinephrine available as well if you need to give some epinephrine, but not a full code dose. You know, that's when that dilute epi is helpful. And then if the child is so significantly ill, you know, especially if you know that you've got you know, let's say poor ventricular function on echo, then, you know, I would consider even having come back up for this intubation. And I should have asked sooner, when does a patient with septic shock actually require intubation? And why might intubation be helpful for a patient like this? Yeah, I think this is an area where there's a lot of practice variation in terms of pulling the trigger and intubating these children. There's obvious benefits facilitate sedation for placement of lines. A lot of times these kids are, you know, agitated and moving about and you feel very nervous about, you know, sedating a child like this without an airway. So it really does help facilitate placement of lines. It reduces oxygen consumption from work of breathing. That's the classic reason to intubate these kids. And then it improves gas exchange and all of this promotes the goal of improving tissue and cellular level oxygen debt. However, the the risks of harm are really significant and need to be carefully considered. So as we mentioned, the risk of cardiovascular collapse, the risk of maybe needing to go into ECMO. So all those things really need to be taken into careful consideration when you decide to intubate these children. So I don't have a hard and fast rule. Like I can't tell you in A, B, and C scenarios, that's where I'm going to intubate a child with septic shock. I think it really comes down to, in the moment, you're gestalt about the child and, you know, weighing the particular risks of harm and benefits. That's very fair. So you're at the foot of the bed. Zach, you're doing airway at the head of the bed. What medications are you asking to be drawn up and given? So I would consider possibly pre-medicating this child with an IVH2 blocker if you have time, like 20 to 30 minutes prior to intubation. So even before we've kind of gotten to this point, I would consider perhaps doing that. And these kids are really at high risk for aspiration. These kids often have stuff sitting in their gut for days. So definitely going to be RSIing this child. And so I'd even consider giving an H2 blocker so that if the child does regurgitate and aspirate, maybe the pH of the regurgitant fluid is going to be higher and maybe there won't be as much damage to the lung tissue from aspiration pneumonitis. So that that's one consideration in terms of pre-medication. And then in terms of the other drugs that I want drawn up for induction, so ketamine, you know, now is the preferred induction agent in septic shock. I think the guideline statements support this now for pediatric septic shock. And then in terms of dosing, it really kind of depends on the child's mental status at the time of intubation. For most kids with septic shock, a dose of somewhere between one and two megs per keg is probably going to be sufficient. And then I like to give fentanyl as additional analgesic with really most of my intubations. And so here I would as well, maybe one max two mics per kilo. Atomidate, I think we all worry about the risk of adrenal insufficiency in kids with septic shock. And so since there's the available alternative with ketamine, I think there's not any really good reason to use Atomidate. And then obviously we would avoid propofol because of the risk of myocardial depression and decreased systemic vascular resistance with its administration. I know that some intensivists like to use high-dose fentanyl for intubation for septic shock. It is likely to be cardiostable, similar to ketamine, but, you know, again, I always worry about not having a good enough level of hypnosis during intubation for especially some of these kids that are a little bit more awake at the time of induction. I really like the concept, the mental model of titrating your dose of sedation, that being ketamine, I guess, in this point, and general anesthesia based on their mental status. So maybe if their mental status is worsening, Mm -hmm. they probably don't need two to three milligrams per kilogram of ketamine. Mm -hmm. There's always that side conversation that maybe ketamine 
given to a patient near cardiovascular collapse may actually induce that. Tell us how we should reconcile Mm -hmm. that with our dose of ketamine here. As I mentioned earlier, I think a child who's severely ill with shock, any induction agent at any dose can cause cardiovascular collapse. You never know how much inherent sympathetic activity they're holding on to to maintain that blood pressure. And, you know, anything you give can can take that away. One microhelo fentanyl might be enough in kids who are really sick to take away that sympathetic drive. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting on the literature <laughs> to really support that. And as I mentioned before, you know, the guideline statements, I think you have that to fall back on with ketamine as being the preferred drug. I will even say anecdotally, when I was in anesthesiology residency taking care of adults and we would get called to intimate the ICU all the time when we were on call, sometimes just giving rocuronium is enough to make them arrest. So I think it all really comes down to the severity of illness of the child and not necessarily the drug that you're administering. Now, obviously, if you give propofol to a child with septic shock, you know, and they become hypotensive and arrest, yes, I will probably blame the propofol. But otherwise, I think it really just boils down to how sick the child is. Oh, interesting. Prashad, is this another RSI for you? Yeah, these children are definitely at high risk of regurgitating and aspirating during induction and intubation. I really appreciate your just give some famotidine if you can before the airway if things are going in the wrong direction. I feel like I often remember to start famotidine after the airway has been secured. (laughs) (laughs) So we will go to case number four. So this case, 12-year-old male, known history of asthma, is admitted with a severe asthma exacerbation. In the ED, he got the standard asthma management and is admitted to the PICU on continuous albuterol and a terbutaline infusion. At the time of your exam, you're worried that his mental status is worsening, and after attempting to optimize his medical therapy and non-invasive ventilation, you feel he's becoming obtundent and you need to intubate. So this is obviously a high-risk scenario. Will you tell us exactly what you're worried about when you're preparing to intubate this patient? Yeah, again, worried about cardiovascular collapse for this child with that dramatic reduction in preload that can happen, particularly in kids who are hyperexpanded and with a severe asthma exacerbation, they're at even higher risk of having that decreased RV preload during that transition to positive pressure ventilation. And then bronchospasm, I expect, also might worsen with noxious stimulation from you know, laryngoscopy and intubation. And so as difficult as ventilation is now, it's probably going to be made worse with that stimulation and then also with trying to transition to positive pressure versus negative pressure and breathing. What is your trigger for intubating someone with an acute asthma exacerbation? You know, I think that for me, mental status is really the most important determinant of whether a child requires intubation. We see hypercapnia not infrequently in kids with severe asthma exacerbations. If they are still maintaining somewhat normal mental status, then you can probably tolerate that hypercapnia because you know that it's going to improve with your therapies directed at bronchospasm and inflammation. However, if the child is somnolent or completely unresponsive, this really indicates a degree of muscle fatigue and CO2 narcosis that places the child at high risk for having a sudden respiratory arrest. And I can imagine nothing worse than intubating asthmatic in an emergent scenario like a sudden respiratory arrest. So because you really need time to optimize conditions before intubation as much as possible. So if you find yourself in an emergent scenario where you have to just go ahead and intubate you, and you don't have a chance to optimize things, then you're really looking at an extremely high risk scenario. Let's say you do have a little bit of time to optimize things. What's your checklist, so to speak? What are you doing for this mm-hmm. patient to give them the best chance to make it through intubation? Volume loading, number one. And then I would also, in this scenario, consider starting a low-dose epi infusion. 
well in advance of intubation. And something I want you guys to keep in mind whenever you're starting an epi infusion, a couple things. Where is it going? Like how much catheter space does the epi have to get through for the child to see it? What dose is it running at? What volume, what infusion rate in mLs per hour is it running at? And what's the concentration? I want you to think about all of these things when you start epi because I don't want you to be lulled into, oh, we started epi, so it's on board and now we can intubate. Really think carefully, is the child seeing the epi already before you proceed with intubation? And then the epi also can help with worsening bronchospasm with its beta agonism. So as I said before, definitely anticipate worsening bronchospasm during laryngoscopy and intubation. You get no style points for having epi in the, in the actual tubing and not going to the patient. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Any other pre-medications you can think of? Sometimes I might consider if for some reason the child has a lot of secretions, and that's not typical in these kids with status asthmaticus, but if for some reason they have a lot of secretions, I may consider glycopyrrolate or atropine. Keep in mind glycopyrrolate takes about 10 minutes to kick in. Atropine only takes a couple of minutes. And then if for some reason, and and I hadn't mentioned this earlier in any of our scenarios, but if you anticipate an anatomically difficult airway, I love glycopyrrolate because every time you perform laryngoscopy, you stimulate the production of secretions. And then before you know it, the secretions are making your airway more difficult. So tell us about induction agents and are you doing another RSI on this patient? My preferred induction agent is going to be propofol, similar to our bronchiolytic, because it can prevent and simultaneously treat bronchospasm. And then, you know, if we do have hemodynamic concerns, obviously, as we mentioned, with these patients and the transition of positive pressure ventilation. So in this scenario, we do need to be somewhat cautious about the dose of propofol we use. So here, using your, you know, titrating your epi will help you so that you can give a sufficient dose of propofol to achieve your intended effect. Or you can consider a cocktail of ketamine and propofol. And, you know, ketamine is nice because it does also have bronchodilating properties. I consider propofol to be better at this, but ketamine also does have bronchodilating properties. So you could consider maybe a cocktail so that they're not getting a full three mg per kg dose of propofol. Maybe they're getting one to two mg per kg of ketamine and one to two mg per kg of propofol. Again, to really achieve that deep plane of anesthesia during laryngoscopy and intubation to prevent the bronchospasm from, from getting worse. And so, you know, really the main focus with the induction drugs that you're picking are, you know, A, avoidance of worsening cardiovascular issues, but B, also, am I getting this child deep enough? So this one, this one's kind of a hard one, balancing those two goals. Will you tell us what advantages you think a combination of ketamine and propofol have over a full dose of ketamine or a full dose of propofol? I don't think ketamine is as good for getting a deep enough plane of anesthesia. I would say anecdotally from experience, I think that's the main reason it's not as good for bronchodilating as propofol is in this scenario, in a scenario where you're doing something noxious to a child. I think that propofol, because it induces a deeper plane of anesthesia, helps prevent that bronchospasm from occurring or worsening in addition to its bronchodilating properties, whereas ketamine since I don't think that it gets you that deep enough plane, I think it's not as good. So I definitely would not prefer a full dose of ketamine over the, the cocktail. And then I do worry in a kid with really bad status asthmaticus about what's going to happen in regards to blood pressure and cardiovascular function during this transition to positive pressure. So I do worry about giving a full dose of propofol. So I think that's where the advantage of a cocktail might come into play. But as I mentioned earlier, you could also consider using a full dose of propofol. Just make sure you're really carefully titrating that epi. And maybe a little additional volume along the way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Is this patient similar to your bronchospastic bronchiolytic where you're trying to avoid the noxious stimuli of bagging because it'll make that bronchospasm worse? 
not really for the noxious stimuli of bagging, but more so because I just don't anticipate that mask ventilation is going to be effective because, you know, the airway resistance is going to be really, really high in these kids. So you'd have to mask ventilate with really, really high pressures to overcome that and actually move the chest after you've paralyzed the child. And so knowing that the upper esophageal sphincter opens at 20, I just anticipate that a lot of that is going to go into the stomach. So in this situation, I just, I, I don't see that it's likely to be effective and probably will just delay what this child needs, which is a breathing tube in the windpipe. I feel like with these intubated asthmatics, we try to get them spontaneously breathing as soon as we reasonably can. Would this be another patient to consider Sugamidex if you felt like that was necessary? Yeah, definitely. Sugamidex would be perfectly used in a scenario like this. What do you do in terms of your next step being ECMO? What do you do to have the surgeons ready? Would you, for this patient, have them stand outside the room? Do you have someone call them? Do you have someone just know what their phone number is? What do you consider to be ECMO readiness as your backup? Yeah, I think this is a I think this is a tricky one. You know, I've had a few sufficiently high risk intubations in my short career thus far where I wanted ECMO fully activated, the surgeon at the bedside, the team at the bedside, the equipment, everything ready. And those kids were really, really, really sick. I think shy of that, sure, if you want to give the surgeons heads up to even find out like, well, where, where are you in the hospital right now? Are you in the middle of a case? You know, would you be able to scrub out if I needed you? If you can delay your intubation until the surgeon is scrubbed out, could you, could you do that? That might be helpful there. But otherwise, that heads up to the surgeon or to the OR team, I'm not sure unless you have them at the bedside, I'm not sure how much it really speeds things up or, you know, mm-hmm. gets you onto ECMO faster at least at our institution, you know, I can't speak to other institutions where, you know, different different processes are in play, but at least at our institution, the heads up call is really not very effective at making anything happen faster unless you're doing it to make sure that the surgeon is actually readily available. You know, maybe the surgeon's gone home for the night, you know, they may not even be in the hospital. And if you have time to delay, that might be where it comes into play. Oh, nice. Thank you. Anything else to add about this case? I don't think so. I think we've covered everything. All right. I'll get us started on our next and last case. So we've got a 13-year-old girl admitted to the PICU with what was thought to be septic shock. Despite fluids, antibiotics, and high-dose vasoactive agents, her hypotension is worsening. You put a probe on her chest and you see a large pericardial effusion with tamponade physiology. Cardiology and CV surgery are called for an emergent pericardiocentesis. Dr. Effune, what exactly makes this scenario so high risk when it comes to securing the airway? So administration of induction drugs and transition to positive pressure breathing in this child is going to be not at all tolerated. That's Mm -hmm. just going to be my assumption from the get-go. She's very likely to arrest during this process. And unfortunately, CPR is probably going to be ineffective because of that large effusion. So that's really the, the primary concern here. I want you to walk us through your mental model, two different scenarios based on the same patient. So how are you going to manage her airway, whether it just be through mask versus invasive, if this is emergent, like we're sticking a needle in her chest now versus we have a little bit of time to optimize and wait for the surgeon and the cardiologist to get here? We're sticking a needle in her chest now. I think you give some ketamine and you hover at the airway and are prepared to intervene should you need to. I think that if you have time, I think 
additional fluid loading, titration of your vasoactives, but still giving probably just ketamine and and hovering at the airway. That's the route that I would take. I don't think that I would choose to intubate this child electively in any fashion. If the child has a respiratory or cardiac arrest, then yes, I will intubate the child. But up until that point, I, I can't foresee an elective scenario in which I would choose to intubate the child. If you had this kid in the OR, would you use anesthetic gas or, or anything different? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways you can go about this if you've got more things at your disposal. Presidex is actually usually pretty well tolerated in these kids, can be used as an adjunct. Ketamine is typically well tolerated. Small doses of midazolam is typically well tolerated. As long as you maintain spontaneous ventilation and you do not take over breathing, because really the key here is that anything other than negative pressure breathing is not going to be tolerated in these kids. As long as you maintain spontaneous ventilation, you can carefully titrate some gas anesthesia by mask. So if you have a really uncooperative or agitated child, you might have to do that. But gas anesthesia does cause some myocardial depression and some decrease in systemic vascular resistance. So I would only do that if I felt like there weren't any other options. Is it fair to say you'd only intubate this patient if they arrest or after the pericardial tamponade has been relieved. Yes, if at all possible. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Yeah. You know, sometimes the uh, on your physiologic difficult airway, sometimes the answer is to not intubate. And that's a good, yeah. good case for this. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to add to this? I don't think so. Um, you know, I, th- this is not something that I would try to treat by myself. I would always have friends with me, even knowing that I'm not going to manipulate the airway, place an airway. Something to consider is to have friends in this scenario. And that's probably a thing for all of our scenarios. You know, never go down alone. Yep. Always have extra help on hand if possible. I am a firm believer of never going down on a sinking ship alone. <laughs> well, great. Prashad, it's clear that your anesthesia experience brings so much not only to your personal ICU practice, but also to your whole group. And so we really appreciate you sharing that experience and knowledge with us. Oh, great. Yeah. I'm so glad to. Thank you, guys. This is fun. Any resources to share with listeners? Anything for them to read more and, and know more about stuff like this? I would suggest referencing anesthesiology textbooks. You know, I don't think that every chapter in an anesthesiology textbook is going to be applicable to trainees, but A, there's a lot of good, just basic physiology and anesthesiology textbooks, but also if you want to learn more about, and you should learn more about the opioids, the benzos, the IV anesthetics, and gas anesthesia, because I think there's a reason to know a lot more about gas anesthesia than we typically do in the ICU. And that's because we are so frequently sending patients to the OR, receiving patients from the OR. So I think that's another important sort of takeaway from reading primary anesthesiology textbooks. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. Incredibly relevant conversation today to things that we see almost every day in the pediatric ICU, these high-risk intubations. Really feel a bit more equipped next time I'm in that scenario, but I also know who to call. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Great. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. It's also worth noting that the views expressed during this episode by me, Zach, and our guests are our own and do not reflect the official position of our institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the production of Pedscrit, you can find us on Venmo and Patreon. We've also had some light merch made in the form of Pedscrit laptop stickers. And if you include a mailing address with any contribution, we would be so excited to send you one. Thank you again for listening.